0: Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, A Love Story. Some people think that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Maybe it is, and maybe it has been for a long time. We are going to hit pause and not talk directly about us or world politics, if that is possible. Instead, today we have a guest who has written an excellent book about cybercrime and all its facets. What has been, what is now, and what we can expect in the near future. The book that I am talking about is Crime.com, and the author is Jeff White, an investigative journalist and one of the UK's leading technology correspondents. His work is featured in numerous outlets, including the BBC and Channel 4 News. And he is the writer and presenter of the acclaimed podcast, The Dark Web. I am happy to be able to welcome to Politics A Love Story, Jeff White. Hi Jeff. Hi Bob, thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. you point out that there are three forces driving this new wave of attacks. Organized cybercrime gangs, hacktivist movements, and nation-state hackers. Cybercrime is no longer just about the money. What's being hacked is, in some cases, the very fabric of society. Could you expand on that? Yeah, sure. Sure. Um As
1: you you said, I feel like for the last 10, 15 years or so, cybercrime has been going up the news agenda and having more and more serious impacts. Uh, Again, as you said, it's not just about money increasingly. It's about information. It's about political processes, about power stations, our energy infrastructure. And and partly this is about the fact that we're more reliant on technology these days. We have more phones. We have more computers. But actually what's happened in the background is those three groups you talked about, The organized crime guys, the nation state guys and the hacktivist sort of uh, underground news hacking kind of elements have come together and they started swapping, swapping tools, swapping tactics, swapping outlooks and behaviours. And as they've come together and as they've learned from each other and evolved together, the threat has just massively escalated. So governments have learned how to use hacking and leaking of data in a highly strategic way. Organized crime gangs have learned how to use government hacking tools to make more and more money. And hacktivists, the sort of freewheeling kind of news manipulators, have learned how to manage the news cycle and almost control the news cycle to get the maximum bang for their buck when they hack into places. So between the three of those groups, that's why, as I say, cybercrime has sort of stormed up the news agenda in the last
0: few years. But going back, uh, let's say to the 1990s, you point out that hackers created a program to generate valid credit card numbers and use them to buy expensive software, which was then pirated. Credit card fraud became the engine that drove a new criminal industry during the 90s. So I want to like start from the beginning and then move towards today. So uh, what? how did they do that? Well, um there had been a credit card for
1: a lively credit card fraud scene, obviously for a while, you know, to be honest, as soon as credit cards came out, fraudsters started trying to defraud them. Um, but credit cards, there's a big boom in credit cards uh, during the 90s in the issuing of credit cards. Um, arguably that's responsible for quite a lot of our financial pain at the moment, but there's more and more cards being issued. Criminals realised that, frankly, if you could get hold of the credit card numbers, uh, you were on the start towards being able to defraud them. What was interesting was um, – <clears throat> In the early days of the, of the web, um, you know, the, the early part of the 90s, it was used for a communication tool. There was email, there were some early websites, but there was a lot of commerce and a lot of trade. And what happens is in 1995, the browser Netscape, which all listeners like like yourself and me, Bob, might remember Netscape was sort of <laughs> proto, you know, early version of things like Chrome and Firefox and so on. Um, Netscape allowed people to use credit cards, to send credit cards over the internet in a quote-unquote secure way. Um, The problem was, yes, as they're traveling over the internet, the credit cards were secure. But when they reached the websites that you were using to make the payment, the website owner didn't necessarily keep your credit card secure once they had it. Mm. So hackers sort of realized this. And that's actually, it's interesting, eBay and Amazon were both launched in 1996. So this, this really, this credit card use online launched the internet commerce boom, the e-commerce boom. But also, of course, people started handing over their credit cards to websites. Security was still in its infancy online, so website owners... You know, received these credit card details and just stored them. Often stored them on a server somewhere. The hackers could break in, steal the credit cards. They already knew how to defraud the credit cards. How to buy stolen goods and wash them and launder the money, now they suddenly had a whole cache of new credit cards, the online credit cards to use. And that, you know, that really turbo boosts, it's one of those occasions when it just turbo boosts the cybercrime industry. There's an amazing tale of of American hackers, American um, fraudsters basically working with Russian hackers in this kind of weird glasnost of cybercrime era (laughs) that happens when when hands across the ocean reach
0: across to create a sort of transnational cybercrime fraud community. It's a remarkable tale. You pointed out one person in particular uh, was online banking, and there were a whole bunch of different tools that were used, uh, Zeus, Virus, Spy eye, Ransomware. Um, mm. Can you give us a little bit of information about that?
1: Yeah, so the next sort of big boom really in in online money was internet banking. So I say credit cards, the web was awash with credit cards around the late 90s, early 2000s. And credit card fraud goes up during that period and not just any, not just credit card fraud from this like stolen cards, it's it's what's called cardholder not present fraud. So often internet scams. But then early 2000s, of course, the banks think, well, hey, we can do online banking because, you know, it's secure to send information to and from over the web. And people want access to their bank accounts. Oh, and by the way, we can potentially close some branches and lay off some people and make some savings. Mm. So the banks saw the advantage of this and they made accounts available online. That's great. You know, you and I can access our accounts online. The problem is, of course, is the hackers no longer have to hack the bank because from now on, every customer has its own back door into the bank and so they could hack the customers. And that's exactly what they started doing. And Zeus, the appropriately named Zeus uh, virus, was hands down, the most profitable bank Trojan virus um, arguably ever invented. It made in excess of $500 million for the guy behind it and his various affiliates and associates. Um, it, it was a, a sort of Swiss army knife of a, of, a, of a cybercrime tool, and it was good. It was very, very well written, a, a very modern, up-to-date, well-supported piece of software, kind of like you buy from Microsoft or Adobe or whoever—you know—it was it was proper, almost shrink-wrapped software that worked off the shelf. So yeah, that was a that was a remarkable period, and again, that money fueled uh, fueled the early cybercrime.
0: Huh. And uh, next thing that you talk about was the billion-dollar Bangladesh heist, uh, yeah. and was North Korea at the center of all that? Uh, certainly, according to your own government, yes. Uh,
1: there's a an FBI complaint against. Uh, one of the guys in the gang that did this. So this was Bangladesh Bank is is the national bank of Bangladesh. It's it's like the New York Fed or the Bank of England or Deutsch, you know, the the, the the German central bank. It's 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 the bank that keeps the country's money. Uh, and in two thousand and sixteen, um, a bunch of hackers broke in and they attempted to steal nine hundred and fifty one million dollars, <laughs> uh, which would have been a huge payday for them. Oh yeah. Um, the money was going to be transferred out of uh, – so, yes, it's Bangladesh National Bank, but they actually keep their dollar money in the New York Fed. So, in New York, there's a bank account sitting there that's got a billion dollars in it. That bank account belongs to the Bank of Bangladesh, and the hackers, having broken into bank, the Bank of Bangladesh, then decided they were going to transfer out all of that billion dollars from New York, from the New York account. Um, what stopped them was a quite bizarre confluence of events. <laughs> mm. Firstly, when you transfer money out of, you know, if you've hacked into uh, the Bank of Bangladesh and you're going to transfer money out, you can't just say, please transfer it to Kim Jong-un, you know, Carol Pyongyang. You know, you've got to, you've got to launder it. So you've got to transfer it to other people first. So the hackers set up a series of accounts in the Philippines. The branch, the bank branch where they were going to transfer the money to was in a place called Jupiter Street in Manila, capital of the Philippines. Just so happens… Jupiter, that name, was on a US government financial watch list hmm. because there have been some company with the same name that have been involved in terror financing. So as the hackers are trying to transfer their money out, they they, they lined up lots of transactions, 35 transactions in total, and some of them have this Ju- Jupiter Street address on them. So the banks that are doing the transfers go, hang on, hang on, Jupiter, that rings a bell. Let's let's flag this. Simultaneously. They make a spelling mistake on one of the transactions. So they're going to transfer some money to a place called the Shalika Foundation, which is in Sri Lanka, which is another of their money laundering plans. They spell it Shalika Foundation. So again, it reaches the bank and somebody goes, Hang on, spelled wrong. This looks a bit sus. They transfer the transactions back. So instead of getting $951 million, North Korea, if indeed it is them, got only, and I say only in quotes, only $81 million. Hmm. But nonetheless, if that is The case, that's 81 million going to a government that is under international financial sanctions. And they haven't stopped there. This is just one of dozens of very high-profile financially motivated
0: attacks that have been attributed to to North Korea. It's an amazing story, the Bangladesh bank heist. It really is. It's also interesting that we talk about human evolution, but there is also digital evolution. So we go from the credit cards to uh, a bank heist, and now Mm. the next thing is digital extortion. Because there's mm. no middleman involved, and then you get to ransomware. And one of the worst hit was the pharmaceutical giant Merck. They were hit mm. for two hundred and sixty million dollars. Mm. What can you tell us yeah. about that? It's 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 really interesting you say that. You're exactly right. There's been this evolution
1: through credit cards. Credit cards are tricky for criminals because they had to kind of spend money on the card and then get the goods and then you know launder the goods, you know fence the goods on bank's account's a bit easier because you can hack into a bank account and transfer the money directly digitally to your account. But again, as I've explained, you've got to have a long process to hide your tracks because the banks are onto that. The next evolution really is, is digital currency, things like Bitcoin, and there are other cryptocurrencies now that work similar in similar ways to Bitcoin. The advantage of those is, um, A, you can transfer them digitally instantly, which is great, a bit like online banking. But Often in currencies like Bitcoin and newer cryptocurrencies, you can't trace the tracks. So you can you can effectively set up dozens and dozens of Bitcoin bank accounts in in inverted commas, and you can wash the money through those bank accounts really, really quickly. And it's not like going to a bank where you have to have ID to set these accounts up. You can set up Bitcoin wallets at the click of a mouse, so you can you can potentially launder the money a lot more quickly. Um, now what that's uh, done is triggered this sort of boom in, uh, as you say, ransomware, which is viruses that when they infect your computer, they scramble your files and then the hackers charge your ransom to unscramble them. It's very, very simple. It's <laughs> direct extortion. The advantage for the hackers is that because of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, they can demand the money to be sent directly to them. So they don't have to say to you, please transfer the money to this bank account, and then the hackers have to transfer it from that account to other accounts and disguise their tracks. They can say to the victims, here's a Bitcoin wallet address. It's unique to you. It's only for your ransom. Pay the ransom, or I'll scramble all your files. And they can take that Bitcoin run it through all of their different Bitcoin wallets, their different Bitcoin accounts, and then pop it out at the other end and transfer it into into cash. So yeah, ransomware
0: really has been another sort of huge rush forward for cybercrime. Well, well, I want to go into ransomware a little bit uh, more. But first, I want to reintroduce you. For those who are just tuning in, we are talking to Jeff White, author of his latest book, Crime.com, From Viruses to Vote Rigging, How Hacking Went Global. You are listening to Politics, A Love Story, and I am your host, Bob Bushansky. So over the last few years, ransomware has become a highly prop- profitable enterprise with multiple crime groups running multiple strains of the virus, tweaking their tactics and splitting their efforts into different campaigns, in the same way that advertisers will run different ads to see which is most effective. That's pretty sophisticated, isn't it? It is. It its um you know, we've talked about credit card theft, we've talked about the bank uh, bank
1: hacking. You know, this money, admittedly, some of it probably goes to buy yachts and Lamborghinis and, <laughs> uh, and who knows drugs or whatever. But, but you know, they invest it back into the business. And so ransomware is a, you know, it's a Monday to Friday, nine to five business. Uh, and, you know, you talked that about the different campaigns, you know, researchers will see, you know, a wave of ransomware infections sent out. And often, depressingly enough, it is still the old email with the kind of click here to, you know... Win a prize, click here to submit your tax return. They'll see these campaigns rolled out. And when they look into the code, they realize it's the same code being used. It's the same group. But they've tweaked it ever so slightly. So they'll they'll, they'll, they'll try this type of ransomware with this particular lure, this particular attraction and particular scam email. And then they'll try it on a different email with a different kind of lure to see whether people are fooled by that. And they're testing. They're A-B testing. Does this one work? Does that one work? Okay, that one works. Let's stick with that one. So it's, it's a very sophisticated set up. The other thing is, um, uh, there's been a couple of developments. Firstly, um, what you might call affiliate ransomware schemes, where if I uh, make the ransomware available, I can make it available on the dark web. Other people download it and spread it and infect people. But when those victims pay the ransom, some of the money comes back to me as the original virus writer. So it's a way of sort of saying, look, you don't have to write your own ransomware. I'll give it to you, and then I'll get a cut of the ransoms that you get. And the other thing that's been interesting is obviously getting people to cough up the ransom is a big, big issue. Um, so often what ransomware designers will do is they'll offer the free decryption of a couple of files. So you can you can see a, tempt, a tempting glimpse of what you could have back. And, and also it's proving to the victim, look, we can decrypt the stuff. We will do it if you pay us. The other big development has been um, uh, to get people to pay up, particularly companies has been to say to companies, look, we've encrypted all of your files. We've also stolen a bunch of your files. If you don't pay us the ransom to decrypt your files, we'll not just scramble them. We'll leave the versions that we have that aren't scrambled onto the Internet, and everybody will see your private stuff. So it's basically really putting the,
0: it's putting the hustle on companies. It's, it's a very cynical and, and quite effective tactic, that. But they've also uh, evolved further than just companies. They've gone and done that to cities and to power mm. uh, stations and all kinds of other things. This is getting yeah. really serious. It, it really is. Um, and there was there was a concern about you know obviously
1: the, the election uh, elections in the U.S. You know whether that would affect sort of voting machines. You've got to realize with a lot of this that. Um, Some hacking is very targeted, and they know exactly who they're going after. And frankly, if someone with enough resources, enough time goes after you, it's almost certain that they will get in. But a lot of hacking is actually indiscriminate. There are tools you can use that will scan the internet and try and find vulnerable pieces of kit. So I've had conversations with hackers where they've Well, one notable conversation particularly where a uh, hacker sort of said, well, did you, have you heard of this organization? And he named it, and I said, well, I, I haven't, but I Googled it quickly. I said, oh, I think it's a charity or an NGO. Uh, wh- why do you ask? He said, well, uh, I've hacked them, and I just don't know who they are. I don't know what to, whether, <laughs> whether to keep going or what to do with this information. Y- you know, sometimes hackers just just go for it, and they don't even know who they're infecting or where. Uh, and so, again, with ransomware, the whole point is, the wider you spread your ransomware, the more people you infect, the more victims you have. The more money you're going to make, the more ransoms you'll get in. So, in a way, they don't care. They don't know that it's a power station. If you told them they wouldn't care, they just say, well, are they going to pay up or not? So, that's the worry is you get these indiscriminate attacks where people just spray and pray – and, and hope that they'll get the ransoms back, uh, and that's that's very dangerous. And we saw that, of course, with the famous WannaCry ransomware attack, which went round the world. It's 150,000, uh, so 150 countries, I think, were affected by that. And again, it was it was automated. They did not care who they were infecting. It was a, it was a there were no hands at the controls of that. It was an automated virus that was spreading with no way of controlling it. Uh, so yeah, you're right, it, it, the places it can land up on, power stations, there was a nuclear power station in India that was hit by ransomware. It's it's troubling that.
0: Well, what are the, uh, the victims or the potential victims doing to protect themselves or to uh, inoculate themselves from these viruses? Mm. Um, there's a few things that people
1: can and should do, and actually this applies as much to individuals as it does to organizations. Um, basically, if you make Uh, regular backups of your information and you store those on a something like a usb stick or something like that and the vital thing is unplug your usb stick from your computer because i've had somebody who they were making backups on a usb stick but they kept it plugged into the computer so when the (laughs) ransomware came along sure enough the backups got infected as well so you need to unplug that usb stick and it's the same for companies you know work out where your vital information is make a backup i don't know whether every day is right for your company depends how big you are. every week you know, every month, but you'd store it somewhere sort of, store it somewhere safe. And that's one way people can protect themselves. The other thing is, um, this ransomware stuff is they pick off low-hanging fruit. So, for example, the WannaCry cyber attack that happened in 2017, the reason that worked was um, there was a, a problem with Microsoft software, Microsoft Windows software, which obviously loads and loads of people have. But Microsoft had fixed the problem and had offered people a patch, a solution, a sort of software update for that problem and so anybody who hadn't installed the patch could get infected but if you had updated your software you you were impervious to this you wouldn't get hit so again those the software updates annoying as i find them i find them annoying too often they contain security updates and it's important to install them because if you don't you're sort of victim so between those two things good backups and updating your software you can you can make yourself a lot safer than, than the majority
0: of people and then things started to change a bit, and there was the dark web. And one of the biggest uh, actors on that particular area was Silk Road, that was mm. a drug uh, exchange, among other things. Mm. Uh, can you give us some, some more information?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the dark web is fascinating. Piece of technology um, originally developed, bizarrely enough, by the U- United States Navy Research Laboratory. <laughs> um, <laughs> who it is interesting. I mean, the governments of you know the government's quite far thinking on this, and particularly the the NRL is a very um, sort of innovative and, and you know quite brainy set of people who looked at the internet and thought, well, "This is great. You know, we can send information around the world. You know, we, that's going to be really useful for us as government you know agents and agencies." But a problem is of course with the internet that as you send it around the world, everybody who sends and receives it and all of the intermediaries who pass that information on can potentially see it as well. So, you know, when I look at the BBC website, you know, all of the little computers and servers and companies who transfer me to the BBC website, they all know that I'm looking at the BBC website. They might not know I'm Jeff White, but they can see my sort of my IP address, my my original gateway to the Internet. Now, obviously, for the US government, that's no good. You can't have, you know, if you're visiting a jihadi website and you're a CIA operative, you can't, you know, you don't really want them to see that—you know where you're accessing from. <laughs> so they invented the dark web, and the dark web fundamentally is a way of getting around the Internet without every intermediary, every Tom, Dick and Harry along the way, knowing what you're looking at. Um, Fantastic piece of technology. The the problem is, of course, that's also of use to criminals who don't want anyone to know what they're looking at. So, you know, criminal uses quickly emerged. But but what's interesting is the dark web trundled along for a bit and people sort of knew about it. It was there and you could, you know, access it. Geeks knew all about it. But what really turbocharged the dark web was the invention, again, of Bitcoin. Because, yes, you could use the dark web to set up criminal enterprises and so on, but you still had to get money in here and there. What was amazing about Silk Road, the site that you mentioned, was it was on the dark web, so it was, it was hidden from view, but also it was able to take transactions and, 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 and payments in Bitcoin, this new and relatively untraceable cryptocurrency. And so that combination of the dark web technology and Bitcoin just happened to coincide, and the sort of epicenter of that earthquake, if you like, was Silk Road. Uh, You know, the, the amounts, it was millions and millions of dollars was washing through Silk Road. And there was an inconvenient thing for me as a journalist. We covered Silk Road. By covering it, did we alert people to its presence to the point where users went to it? Did we inadvertently... You know, become an advert for Silk Road. I, hmm. it's, it's a difficult one as a journalist. You're faced with this dilemma a lot. You know, do I cover something or not? Am I going to give it undue publicity or not? My view in the end was, if we knew about it, the police knew about it, and if the police knew about it, its days were numbered. And sure enough, there was there's an amazing story about the takedown of Silk Road and how they how they penetrated that organisation.
0: Would you like to explain about
1: that? Yeah, yeah. So the so <laughs> the person at the head of Silk Road, and it was. I've got a certain amount of nostalgia, actually, for things like Silk Road. Because, uh, you know, I started on the internet when, you know, it still felt like you, you, you hear about websites by word of mouth. I mean, these days, nobody, you know, word of mouth is useless. You just, you have to use Google and these kind of things. You know, back in the late 90s, you know, it, websites sprung up and became popular. And they just didn't, it felt like I had a small community, is what I'm trying to say. And Silk Road had that small community feeling. And at the head of the community was a guy called... Dread Pirate Roberts, or DPR. Uh, For fans of film, you may recognize the name. It comes from um, uh, the famous film that's escaped my knowledge at the moment. Dread Pirate Roberts was Princess Bride. That's Ah. it. It came from the Princess Bride, and... This was a character as a pirate in Princess Bride, and the idea was this pirate was actually just a, an identity, a front identity, and multiple people could inhabit it. So when one pirate wanted to retire, he'd hand over the moniker to the next pirate. The whole thing about this was the dread pirate Robert identity at the head of Silk Road was meant to confuse people and to make them think that actually it wasn't run by one person at all. It's probably run by loads of people. Weirdly, it was run by one person. He was an American called, uh, uh, called uh, Ross Ulbricht. Um, And back years before he set up Silk Road, he uh, asked on an Internet forum for some help setting up a website. And that post, that original post that he did linked to an email address, that email address was then linked to an early mention of Silk Road. And so suddenly the FBI worked out, hang on, we think Dread Pirate Roberts is Ross Ulbricht. They then had to try and catch him. And they had to catch him red-handed. So, you know, if they just arrested him and said, you know, we think you're the head of Silk Road, he he could deny everything. So what they wanted to do was catch him while he was actually logged in to to the site, while he was logged in as the administrator. Now, he's on his laptop. If he closes his laptop... Even for a second, if he gets a second's warning he's going to be arrested, he can close the laptop and suddenly the evidence could be erased. You, mm. you can arrange your laptop so it will wipe all the data. So they needed the laptop open, his fingers on the keyboard, but they needed to get him in a split second so he didn't have a chance to close the laptop. So a couple of undercover officers pretended to be two drunks having an argument mm. <laughs> outside the bit where that isn't a library this happened, made a huge fuss. And so Ross Ulbricht turned around to see what the fuss was about, and another officer reached across the table, grabbed his laptop, and swung it away from him before he could get to it. <laughs> For any library users around
0: that time, it must have been a bizarre sight. But yeah, it's just one of the many bizarre stories contained in the book, actually. That... One of the interesting things about cybercrime is that there's not as much murder and mayhem as there is in r- uh, real organized crime as we knew it growing up. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a, an interesting aspect to this, but still... It, it hurts a lot of people, so I'm not going to belittle uh, the people who are involved in this, but certainly uh, there are no machine guns, there are no exploding devices, uh, at least uh, mm. those that hurt and maim people.
1: Uh, just an
0: observation. Yes, yes.
1: I think I think you're right. And there's there's a great cartoon, which I think is a New Yorker cartoon, of three sort of cliched mafiosi types sitting in a in a restaurant, and one of them saying to the others, uh, "You know, for operational reasons, we'll be for health and safety reasons, we'll be shifting our operations to cybercrime." Um, And it is true, you know, hackers have learned, criminals have learned that hacking is safer than going to a bank with a gun. Um, There is though an interesting interface between uh, cybercrime and organized and physical crime so for example if you've hacked somebody's bank account and you want to transfer the money out you need that money in cash ideally because you you know you're going to buy your your yacht or your lamborghini with cash well you need somebody to get the cash out the cash point so you need somebody's going to do that and you can't have them run off with the money so you need to threaten them with (laughs) violence and you need somebody's going to do that at scale so you need people to run groups of these people that is money muling, and it relies on people trafficking and it relies on uh, uh um people migrants who are who are abused in that kind of way and exploited in that kind of way so you're right in that cybercrime arguably is less violent on the other hand don't make any mistake there is a heavy interface a deep interface between cybercrime and a traditional organized and violent socially disruptive crime
0: yeah uh, now there's something i that popped into my mind and i don't know if it was covered in your book but edward snowden the former nsa contractor um, he escaped uh, detection and now uh, arrest uh, with uh, millions and millions of bits of information, including tools that were developed by the NSA that are now being turned back on uh, the United States and the NSA. Uh, do you have uh, any information about that?
1: Yeah, it's it's the Snowden story is really uh, really interesting. I think. As I understand it, what Snowden escaped with was um, effectively a sort of internal Wikipedia site for U.S. intelligence agencies. <clears throat> so there's a site um, that you could go to that you could look things up and, and say, what does this program mean? And what, what do, you know, who's working on this particular project and so on? So the stuff that he stole was, was intelligence. Now, the issue is obviously when you put that information out, suddenly a whole bunch of criminal groups and also nation state groups and so on think, oh, ah, OK. So if I use, I don't know webcams, for example, the NSA is able to hack into them. You know, if I use this particular cryptocurrency, the NSA can track me and that kind of thing. So, so that was a damage. It wasn't so much that he leaked the sort of tools that the NSA was using. He leaked the intelligence about the tools that they had and that they could use. But that's equally as damaging because it means the NSA can't, can't use a lot of them uh, uh, a- anymore. Um, what's interesting is um, there's, a, there's an interesting dilemma for, for, for that in that one of the things around the 2016 u.s presidential election was was the you know the use of intelligence by uh, these of intelligence agencies by the US government to ferret out uh, Russian interference uh, in, in that election and obviously that relied on all of the kind of you know intrusive um, uh, privacy invading stuff that Snowden was sort of you know pointing to so there was an awkward thing where on the one hand snowden has pointed out all of this you know very Deeply privacy-invading stuff. On the other hand, you know, when it comes to things like Russian interference in the election, we'd kind of want to know about that. So, yeah. so there was an interesting, interesting dilemma there. Um, and you know, the irony of the fact that Edward Snowden, of course, ended up finally in Russia, which wasn't his choice of final destination, but is a is a I don't know whether I the right word, but a deep, a, a deeply strange place for him to to end up. And I I'm not sure actually what's going to happen. I'm, I don't know what his visa situation is, but it'll be interesting to see what happens, whether he'll actually ever make it back to the US or elsewhere.
0: I think he was just granted citizenship in Russia. I read that yesterday.
1: Oh, ah, okay. Gosh, wow. Yeah.
0: It's such an odd outcome.
1: It is. <laughs> it a, is. <laughs>
0: a bizarre story, a bizarre outcome. Well, let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you. You're listening to Politics, A Love Story. Our guest today is Jeff White, and his new book is Crime.com, From Viruses to Vote Rigging, How Hacking Went Global. It's a fascinating book, and I think anyone who wants to uh, buy it would be uh, well off because this is an interesting read and you get a lot of information. Okay, so then uh, you talk about two... um, Government agents, uh, that's U.S. government agents, Carl Force and Sean Bridges, who were each Mm. jailed up to six years. Uh, What did they do? Yes, so this goes back to the Silk Road case. Um, There were multiple
1: law enforcement agencies circling around Silk Road, um, notably because a a U.S. senator held a a press conference uh, and, and showed pictures of Silk Road to the press and said, this is insane, this this site is openly offering drugs, let's do something about this. Um, That caused a bit of a headache for the law enforcement agencies because they, at the time, weren't sure whether they could do anything about it, they barely understood the the, the tech for a lot of them. (laughs) Um, And so they started circling Silk Road, so you've got multiple agencies, drug enforcement agency, you've obviously got the, the FBI investigating, police forces in the various jurisdictions, so there was a bit of a sort of alphabet soup of stuff. Um... And some of them were going uh, undercover and doing undercover operations. Um, and so they would, you know, it was quite easy, actually, to log on to Silk Road and set up an account. Uh, I had an account there myself, actually, I should point out. I didn't um, didn't buy any any, any drugs, but um, <clears throat> actually a colleague of mine did, but we can go into that later. Um, uh, for journalistic purposes, I should point out. Uh, and so you could set up an account. So police officers did this, and, and one of them, uh, uh, Carl Force, set up this account, um, and started getting close to the person who ran Silk Road, this Dread Pirate Roberts character, and saying, implying Kalfors under his pseudonym, implied that he had some heavy underworld connections. Uh, Ross Ulbricht, the person who was Dread Pirate Roberts and ran Silk Road, at one stage decided he needed um, somebody bumped off. So he went to uh, what he thought was his heavy underworld contact that he had through Silk Road, so how much to get this person bumped off. And of course, you know, the person at the other end is a, you know, is a law enforcement officer in the U.S., but sort of starts negotiating, you know, how much it would mm. cost. They then have to stage... Um, an execution, a mock execution, um, and send photographs of the successfully completed execution to Russell Bricht and so on. So all of this sort of went on. Um, I should point out Russell Bricht was never actually charged with the murder for hire scheme that was uh, that, that all this is about. So quite what happened to the evidence there, I don't know. But one of the elements of what happened to the evidence was that the person he was negotiating with. Um, who pretended to have these heavy underworld connections but was an undercover uh, officer was actually himself corrupt and had been stealing money mm. from Silk Road. Um, and not just that, I mean, it's bizarre. He, he apparently was in negotiations with, I think it was Sony, to sell the rights to the film <laughs> of his work. He was also trying to extort the guy who ran Silk Road. Uh, by claiming to have information about the investigation into him that he could sell, which of course he did because he was an undercover officer. So just on multiple levels, the corruption was stupendous. And so he and the, he and a fellow law enforcement officer um, were convicted for stealing money from uh, from Silk Road. And um, yeah, that the Silk Road conviction was very controversial. There was a lot of protests about it. And when all of that stuff came out, it really poured a lot of petrol on that fire because people saw – how incredibly venal and corrupt officers could be—obviously not all were—but but, but it, yeah, it really it lit the fire under a lot of complaints. I think about
0: their suspicion about that that conviction. And, and which which uh, crimes were considered the most egregious? Because it wasn't just the drugs and uh, mm. and the other things, but the child pornography. So yes, yeah, um, I mean
1: there is you know th- there is obviously. Th- th- there is definitely child images of child sexual abuse on the on the dark web. That definitely happens. Um, but it, it's it's a more complicated picture necessarily than you think. Um, so, for example, a lot of the crime forums I would go on to would be credit card forums and drug forums and so on. And a lot of those had a rule saying we do not with no child pornography on the site. The reason being, as soon as you're peddling in that kind of stuff, you are suddenly on the radar for very heavy law enforcement action and also vigilante hackers who, you know, don't mind the dark web but do mind child sexual abuse. So a lot of site owners, dark web site owners, just don't want the hassle, so they, they would they would not have the stuff for that reason. However, there will be sites, and I've not visited them because that's that's not legal for me to do, but there will be sites the dark web that peddle this kind of stuff. It is important to remember, though, that... If you look at the reports that get made to well, in the UK we have the Internet Watch Foundation. In the US, you have uh, uh, NCMEC, the National uh, Child Exploitation Centre, uh, a Missing and, and Exploited Child Centre. Um, you know, a lot of these reports are about websites that aren't on the dark web, just normal open web sites, um, and so, and they obviously make up the vast majority of sites on the web. The dark web actually is a tiny, tiny proportion of the actual sites. So inevitably, by number, you're going to have a lot more reports of that material uh, on on the normal web, on the open web. For me, as as a a journalist, it's it's a very difficult um, thing to research. You know, I um, you have to be very, very careful about this stuff. And and a lot of the investigation work that I would well, not like to do, but I feel it should be done, is difficult to do because of the risk of, of inadvertently breaking the law by by accessing these images or, or even inadvertently downloading them. So it's it's definitely there. The scale of it, though, is beyond the research ability, I think, of, a,
0: of most journalists, if not all. You point out that by 2016, there were an estimated 40,000 dark websites and around 2 million people using the Tor browser. Mm. What mm. was that?
1: Uh, Well, the Tor Browser is the way that you use the dark web. Um, And that must sound very scary and terrifying, but actually the Tor Browser can be used to visit, you know, The KZYX website, for example, the BBC News website or CNN's website, you know, and and it will disguise your traffic to that website. So Mm -hmm. the website owner won't necessarily know where you're accessing from. So it's a good – it's a privacy-protecting browser. And one of the reasons for the boom, actually, in the use of Tor was uh, our old friend Edward Snowden. You know, when his revelations came out, there was a boom in the number of people using this privacy-protecting software. Um, But Tor, and it looks like a normal browser, you know, when you load it up, it looks a bit like Chrome, a bit like Firefox. I think it was developed actually from Firefox. Um, But it can be used to access these hidden websites the websites with with often have criminal material but also have you know whistleblower material and so on uh, on them so um, so that's sort of what led to the, partly what led to the boom uh, in the use of tor and the interesting thing is you know it's a very difficult genie to put back in the bottle i mean tor is is open source as we say so the software the code has been published so it's not like you know Microsoft Word. You know I can't get I can't hack into Microsoft Word and change the code and send it to a friend of mine. That's why Bill Gates got very rich. <laughs> um, Tor, it's it's open. The code is just open. You can download it, tinker with it, play with it, analyze it, send it on. So it's not like that. You can't go to a company and say please shut down the dark web or shut down Tor because it's not owned by anyone
0: any one company. And that's a big big issue I think for, for law enforcement. You have another interesting chapter here, or a segment, uh, and we talk about Bass Dorn, a citizen of the Netherlands, who had a new idea. The largest dark web company in 2016 was Alpha Bay. He thought that taking it over might be better than taking it down. Could you yes. go into that a little bit? Yes, this was a fascinating thing. So, so um,
1: after Silk Road's demise, um, it wasn't like dark web drug sites went away they just they just got smarter basically and as you say alpha bay was one of the big ones named obviously after ebay i, I presume <laughs> um and it had drugs it also had stolen information and so on uh, there was another site which is called hansa which is also very big they were sort of vying really for the number one spots these sites um and what People like Bastorn, who was working with the Dutch police at the time, realized was if you shut down one, they'll just go on to the other. And if you shut down that one, there's this kind of, you know, waterbed effect where you stamp on one bit and the problem just goes elsewhere. So the idea was to hit two sites at once, two biggest sites. So they managed to they got a, a lucky break. They managed to find the people who were running Hansa and they managed to take over the site. And Bastorn himself rebuilt and actually optimized the site. So he ended up improving the website, um, which was now run by the Dutch police. So everybody going up to Hansa and you know, buying their drugs was using a website, which was being <laughs> run by Dutch police. Uh, they ran it for, I think, three weeks. And then they, they, they very shrewdly bombed both sites at once. They shut down Alpha Bay. They allowed people to flock to Hansa because they knew people would just go to the next biggest site, which was Hansa. And then after a few weeks... They dropped the hammer on that as well. And so anybody logging on there was greeted with a message saying the site's been seized. And it, it did cause a fair bit of pandemonium um, because people just suddenly thought, crikey, is this, is this it? If they if they managed to control the whole dark web, it really – the key thing about all these things is trust. There has been a certain amount of trust built up on the dark web in site's owner's ability to run these sites. And, and that operation – Uh, Operation Bayonet really shoved, as the name would suggest, shoved a dagger into the heart of of trust. It's been building up ever since, as it does, but those operations,
0: you know, they really scatter a lot of criminality and and damage it, uh, at least temporarily. And then you you point out that uh, a new breed of highly secure phone apps has become the next outlet for traders who might previously have turned to the dark web. How does that work? Hmm. Well, these are... um,
1: it, it, it sounds like a highly secure apps, communication app. Sounds like something that you know Edward Snowden would use, or you know James Bond. But actually, you know, if you use iMessage on the iPhone, if you use WhatsApp, um, what's different about these new these new strain of apps is um, when I send a message to you, Bob, you and I both get a copy of it. But if we send it using things like WhatsApp and iMessage, and if we set it up correctly. The company in the middle doesn't get a copy of the message. And that's new, that's different. Previously, people like Facebook, Google and Twitter and so on, when you send a message, they the company gets has a copy of the message stored on their server. So if the police want to, you know, tap into our communications, I'm not going to cooperate, neither are you, because we're both criminals, but they can always go to the company. The difference with things like iMessage and all of these new ones as Signal as Wicco, and so on, um, Telegram and all these other ones, is the company in the middle don't keep a copy of the message, or at least the copy they keep is scrambled. So if the law enforcement go to them and say, hey, give us a copy of Jeff and Bob's message, the company can hold up its hands and say, sorry, Gov, we can't help you. So it's it's a big challenge, this, for law enforcement. Um, and, and that's where quite a lot of the criminality
0: has moved as far as I'm aware. Hmm. So I, I have this odd question for you. I saw this word at least twice in your book, and I have no idea what it means. What is a FAF, F-A-F-F? <laughs>
1: A faff a faff is something where you, you it's it's a you can't be bothered to do it it's it's something that's a bit of a pain in the butt and uh, so you know cleaning your fridge freezer or something is a faff it's you know it's it's a, a pain in the bum to do that's basically what it is so a- apologies for the britishism i did think about that with the book i thought oh there must be britishisms in here but of course being british i didn't spot them so uh, you've pulled me
0: up on that one but yes a faff is a
1: is a something you don't want to bother doing
0: so it's often been said that uh, great britain and the united states are two countries separated by an ocean and a language <laughs> Okay. Yes, indeed. So uh, soon the ability to to, uh, create end-to-end encrypted apps spread uh, uh, way beyond the big players, spawning a string of apps we've probably never heard of, and you've mentioned some of them just before, Wicker, Dust, Signal, Thema, Mm. Silent Phone, Telegram, and others. So these things are proliferating at a very fast rate, aren't they?
1: They are. And, you know, what's amazing is if you're any good at developing these apps, you can develop one, launch it, stick it on the App Store or on Google's Play Store, and people could download it, and away you go. And they go in phases, these sorts of things. I mean, Kick was a big one for a little while. Um, you know, Signal is big, Telegram's is big. Um, and interestingly, I mean, you know, in the case of, of, of some of these apps, the developer, the actual owner, is a person. You can look at them on LinkedIn. You can find their company, and you can email them. So, you know, they're not, they're not hiding. These aren't, in a way, secretive companies or secretive apps. And a lot of journalists, myself included, use Signal and Telegram for communicating with people. But it does throw up this challenge for law enforcement. They can go to these companies and say, look, you know, we, we really think these two people are breaking the law. Can we please have a copy of the message. And even if Telegram and Signal wanted to comply, they've put themselves in a the position where they, where they
0: can't. They've sort of taken their hands off the wheel. So, uh, so yeah, it's tricky. Hmm. And uh, you talk about so-called hacktivists. That used the tools pioneered by an online protest movement and ended up subsumed into cybercrime. Mm, How mm. did that work? So this was this this is mainly
1: about the anonymous movement. So you, you may remember these guys. They wore the Guy yep. Fawkes masks, yep. um, often often pictured in hooded tops. Um, uh, anonymous was started as a kind of a uh, it was a sort of splinter group on a website called 4chan, um, which is. Very famous, has quite a quite a controversial reputation. It's, I mean, it is. It's, it's the um, the heavy end of free speech, I suppose you'd say. You know, on 4chan, anything is permitted, and and if you if you don't like that, you better stay off the site. Mm. Um, Anonymous sort of started there, but really morphed into a kind of protest movement, um, uh, particularly around the story of Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks. Obviously, Assange was um, uh, Assange was leaking sensitive government U.S. government documents, and at one point, PayPal uh, decided they weren't going to take payments for WikiLeaks anymore. And that really got under the skin of the Anonymous movement, who, being the Anonymous movement, being in favour of libertarian free speech, they loved WikiLeaks. And the idea that PayPal was going to not support WikiLeaks anymore really annoyed them. So they went to, went to war against PayPal and uh, also various other companies. Um, w- what's interesting is, um, on the one hand, Anonymous was this very modern movement, you know, anybody could sort of sign up in inverted commas to anonymous, you know, you could get the software, you could become part of the sort of protest movement. Effectively, their main tactic was what's called denial of service attacks, which is where, you know, you, you, you all of you visit a website en masse at one point um, and, and just keep refreshing the website over and, over and over and over and over again. And the website can't cope with all the traffic and it just crashes in the same way that during the, you know, the big sales you know, um, the big retail sales, you know, the websites will go on. It's the same sort of thing. You know, they're just overloaded by traffic. That was Anonymous's tactic. Arguably, it's not even hacking. It's a sort of digital sit-in, but it's still disruptive, and it still ruins companies for, for you know, for the, for the time it happens. Um, so that was what Anonymous were doing. The idea was that, you know, any members of the public, you, me, could sign up, you know, and become part of this. What was happening, actually, in the background was – cyber criminals who actually own networks of hacked computers were adding serious firepower to that anonymous movement. So, yes, they were able to rely on, you know, the swathes of, you know, anonymous collective members, you know, folks like us who just fancied joining in on this, you know, crazy movement. But actually the heavy firepower was being wielded often by by cyber criminal elements. And what's interesting is as anonymous has evolved, um, cyber criminal elements have kind of come into it and people who've initially used those sort of denial-of-service attacks, have learned to weaponize them and actually learned to kind of intimidate and extort companies uh, using them. So yes, there's still an anonymous freedom of speech movement, there's, that still exists, but it's sort of morphed elements of it into, into cybercrime. Um, so it's a really interesting sort of, I guess it's the kind of snake in the Garden of Eden, isn't it, that you know, once you realize you can make money off of something, mm. you, you, often that becomes the
0: motivation. So you point out another um, group, organization, I'm not sure what it is, but Lulzak which was mm. different from Anonymous?
1: Yes, yeah, LulzSec was a splinter group from Anonymous. I mean, anonymous became very amorphous. There was a lot of bitchiness, a lot of infighting, and LulzSec emerged. Uh, Their the idea was, you know, we're going to take the best bits of Anonymous. We're going to become a more focused group, and also we, we are the high-skilled people. We, we, we don't just lob denial-of-service requests at websites and try and crash them. We actually know how to hack. Uh, and they did, you know, they broke into... It's difficult to put together a comprehensive list because they broke into so many places and were charged with so many different things in so many different different jurisdictions. But, um, you know, among others, the serious organized crime agency in the UK, the NHS, uh, Sony, just, you know, many, many organizations. But what was amazing about LulzSec was they they really mastered the media, how to – manipulate, I guess you'd say, or at least work symbiotically with the media. They gave the media what they wanted, which was headlines, hacker headlines. And and the media gave LulzSec what they wanted, which was attention for their hacks. And so you, you started to see this kind of symbiotic relationship of, okay, how can we push and prod the media? And how can, we, and how can the media then pushing and prodding back? Uh, and that, you know, sort of morphs into this kind of much more dangerous picture
0: about sort of fake news and disinformation and controlling the media, I think. Uh, You brought up something in this book that uh, hit me immediately because I have read two novels recently that use this particular term, and it is zero day. It's a rare Mm. vulnerability in software. Could you explain that, please? Yeah, yeah. So we talked earlier on about the sort of software updates that, you you know, they install
1: security updates. And the reason for that is somewhere, let's say Microsoft, have found out about a problem with their system, and they fixed it. And they, they say to all their users, okay, download this software update and it'll, it'll fix that sort of hole that, that, that exists currently in our product. Now, think about the first person who finds that hole before Microsoft knows that it's there. That's, you know, you've effectively got a skeleton key and nobody knows you've got it. Uh-huh. So you can break into people's computers, you can make hay, you know, and, and that's what a zero day is. At the point you discover that vulnerability, that, that new and novel way of breaking into a computer or a piece of software or whatever it is, you're at day zero. And every day from then on, you're going to make money because nobody even knows you've got that skeleton key. As soon as somebody finds out and goes, oh, hang on, there's a problem with this software. Let's fix it. Gradually, your number of victims is going to decrease because more and more people will fix the problem and you can't break into their computers. So the reason it's called zero day is basically you start at zero. That is your first day to make bit, And the longer you can stay under the radar and not get spotted, uh, the better. There is a febrile trade now in zero days because you can imagine, you know, Microsoft now has – Teams of people crawling all over its software, and all the big companies do, to try and spot the um, problems. So as a hacker, you've got to be as good, if not better, than all of Microsoft's security staff, because you've got to spot the thing that they all missed. Once you do, you can sell it. You can go on to the criminal underground, or you can go on to the, the, the zero-day underground, and say, "Look, I've discovered this flaw in this particular piece of software. Who's going to make me an offer for it?" Now, are now brokers who will broker those deals, and we're talking we're talking millions of dollars for for, for a good exploit, a good zero-day. Um, it's the cybercrime marketplace. It's it's the it's the weapons marketplace of cybercrime. It's not good. I'll say this because hmm. you know when these things happen, it's you and I that suffer. It's not just governments and and and, and
0: big companies. It's interesting that some of the ideas that you are writing about are also in uh, modern-day fiction. Uh, and one of the things mm. I'm going to bring up is Stuxnet. And was it a success or not? But it's also the basis of a Daniel Silva novel.
1: Ah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I envy the, I envy the fiction Guys, because they, they can just make it up. <laughs> we, um, but, um, but it's based I'm on on real ideas. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, Stocksnet was 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 dimly terrifying in a way. But so this, this is um, Iran had a nuclear, uh, nuclear Iran has a nuclear energy program. Interestingly, Iran's justification for that is: look, we've got lots of oil. But because of the sanctions, we can't refine any of it, so we haven't got our own energy supply. So we need nuclear power for our own energy supply. So I don't know how much I believe that logic, but that is their logic. So they have nuclear power, and the suspicion is they are also trying to make nuclear weapons out of that. Um, They built a nuclear refinement plant. There was a suspicion it was being used to refine weapons-grade uranium, not just energy producing but but weapon producing grade uranium um obviously one option is to try and bomb it but it wasn't easy that was spark an international incident so it seems the us and israel got together and decided they were going to hack the power plant uh and so they developed um an incredibly s- specific advanced piece of uh hacking software because because the problem they've got is once you've been once you've smuggled this into the power plant which is what they seem to have had to have done, and plugged it in, you've got no control over it. You can't control it because the power plant's not connected to the internet. So they had to design something that once it was plugged in, would automatically unpack, automatically run, and control, you know, run using remote control, run in a self-guided way, such that it could take this power plant down. And that's exactly what it did. In order to get uranium, you have to spin the uranium gas high high speeds in these big centrifuges and that that splits the uranium out into bits you can use. And what they did was they periodically speeded up and slowed down the spinning of those tubes, which cracks the tubes. And those tubes are obviously big and expensive and heavy and you're using loads of uranium gas and so on. So, basically, they they pretty much demolished the reactor from the inside using only cyber means. It's a remarkable campaign. The problem is… Is that an act of war? You know, you've damaged somebody's critical infrastructure. I'm sure the British wouldn't like having our nuclear power stations, you know, taken offline by the Iranians. Um, The other problem was, much as they tried to make sure this virus only landed on that one power station, it did infect other computers. They weren't in power stations, so it didn't do them any damage, but, you know, there was collateral damage along the way. So there's a lot of ethical questions about the uh, Stuxnet
0: virus. But it could it be absolutely proven that it was the Americans and the Israelis who were attacking (laughs) Iran.
1: Um, Yes, this is the attribution question. It's always a difficult one. There were a number of briefings given to very well-informed journalists. Um, uh, Kim Zetter's book on this, Countdown to Zero, is really good. There's chapter and verse in there. Frankly... When it started to emerge, this had happened. So this virus leaked out into the wild. Researchers started analysing the virus, went, oh, hang on, this is suspicious. It's targeting an Iranian nuclear reactor. From then on, clearly there were a bunch of people in Washington who just could not wait to brief the media and claim credit for it because – It actually looks quite good for the us in some ways it's like yeah we can we can damage your nuclear reactors without even without even touching we can damage them from across the world it spreads this message that america is a cyber superpower and you don't mess with america so there's compelling evidence given to journalists i think that it was the us uh, and israel but even if it wasn't it actually works to uh, the us's advantage i think to say look you know, if you if you try and try and you know tinker with your nuclear program, we don't like it. We can damage you. We can take it apart. So, uh, you uh, there will never be a I don't think there'll ever be a hand signed letter by George Bush or Barack <laughs> Obama saying yes, <laughs> StocksNet was me. But, but yeah, you've got to believe what the uh, what the well informed journalists
0: say. I guess we're getting to the end of our time, and there was one little paragraph that I just wanted to read. Uh, Hacker tactics have moved a long way from simple mischief or money-making or a combination of both in the last few years. They've had bigger and more significant impacts on our lives. And now, hackers are not just threatening the infrastructure that helps us survive, but are manipulating what we see and hear. It's a confluence of criminal hacking and influence managing that has been brewing for years. Mm. Those are your words, right? Yes. Okay. yes. <laughs> I wrote them. In a good book. Uh, so, any last words you'd like to uh, to speak before we have to say goodbye?
1: Um, I think. I mean, I'm slightly worried that a lot of people a lot of people use the word terrifying when it comes to my book. And I, you know, <laughs> interesting and compelling as that is, I do I not like to people leave people feeling necessarily too terrified. Look, it's the basic stuff you can do that we've talked about. You know, updating your software. You know having a backup of your information the other thing is passwords just making sure you've got strong passwords that aren't in the dictionary if you my favorite tip is if you get a line from a song or a poem that you that you like that's really obscure like a really obscure song or poem that only you like take the first letter from each word of that line from that poem or song and there you go you've got a random password um, often people put a capital letter at the beginning and numbers at the end. Don't do that. Put the numbers at the beginning and have a capital letter at the end. And instantly, if you've done that, you're a lot safer than a lot of other people whose, whose passwords can be guessed. Um, the other thing is emails. I cannot tell you how depressing it is that in 2020, it's still emails that get people in. So all the examples we've talked about, Sony, Bangladesh Bank, the, the the 2016 presidential election, the power stations, the way in is is so often is somebody getting a dodgy email and opening it up? You know, I know we're all busy, we're all rushed, we're all working from home, and so on. But just take a second guess at emails. If you get one that's dodgy. Send a fresh email to the person, like a new email to the person. Say, look, I got this from you. Should I click on it? Should I open it up? Uh, that will help you. Also, links that you see on social media, be careful about clicking on those. Um, so it's not this stuff isn't rocket science, but just being a little bit cautious about this stuff will lift you, will, will stop you being the low-hanging fruit um, <clears throat> for, for, for computer hackers. And the other thing is on the information side… Please be careful about what you like and what you share on places like Facebook and Twitter and so on. People have this idea that just liking something or even just watching something and clicking on a link doesn't matter. It matters all the world because Facebook take those likes and those clicks and those shares and they use that to judge whether that post is any good. So you may not think that you've done much by clicking on the link or liking it or sharing it, but what you've done is given Facebook another indication – that that piece of news right there or that piece of content is good and should be pushed up the rankings so if it's not good and you don't think it should be pushed up in the rankings if you think it's rubbish and crap information don't like it don't click on it don't share it just ignore it and move on and that's we all have to now do that because otherwise we're sort of beholden to uh, to the social media giants
0: so there you go that is my that is my top tips for you i don't know Nico, but- i thought those were terrific and i want to thank you so much for participating and for being on Politics, A Love Story. And who am I thanking? I'm thanking Jeff White, whose great book, Crime.com, From Viruses to Vote Rigging, How Hacking Went Global. And he's speaking to us from London. So I want to thank him, thank him definitely from the bottom of my heart for being a participant in this show. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great fun. Thank you. Same here. Bye-bye.